Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Disclaimer time. This is where I tell everyone to lighten up. It's just a podcast. Trading is like that roller coaster at the amusement park. Thrilling, unpredictable, and potentially stomach-churning. What works for one person might leave another clutching their hat in the wind. Our hosts and guests, they're awesome, knowledgeable, full of insights, but we're not financial advisors. So don't rush to make any investment decisions based solely on our banter. Always consult with a professional or do your own research. Plus, let's face it, we like to have fun, laugh, enjoy the trading ride together. It's all in the name of good podcasting fun. So remember, take it easy, don't bet the farm, and keep your seatbelts on at all times. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the China Shop, home of the Band of Traders podcast. I am your host, Kyle, and today I'm joined by a special guest, JM from the Vanta Discord. JM has a background in quant trading and has agreed to come on to talk about his experiences. I've also called in reinforcements as our friend Robert here has a much better background, should be able to follow the conversation a lot better than I can. Uh, But before we dive into that conversation, you guys have anything you'd like to promote? Anybody want to shout out? Uh, JM? No, just the um, guys at Vanta. Great place to uh, to hang out. Oh, yeah, for sure. I uh, love hanging out over there. Uh, what about you, Robert? Thanks, Kyle. I do have a project, actually, that some folks might find helpful. Over in the China Shop part of the Vanta Discord, I've been pulling together ideas and requests from members for uh, custom CR chart studies. And I've put these together in a free collection that's available for anyone in the Discord. Uh, some of these are a little more experimental, and some of these are actually used daily by by some of the members. We've got some, a lot of great traders there, and some of them have some great ideas for uh, custom studies. So anyway, if you're curious about trying this out, just to get on the Vanta Discord and DM me, Robert R., and I'll get you set up. Awesome. Yeah, there's some great studies on there. The Power Towers is one of my favorites. Uh, sounds like you got uh, the Liz tool working a little bit better, too. The I, I think you changed the name of that, didn't you? Um, yeah, I've, I've been working on a tool um, in the background for a while. It's not part of the collection yet. And I might even still thinking about it if I want to make it like a premium idea. But the idea is, is to create a tool to help automate your trade size based on parameters like on the chart. For example, you can right click a bar and it will create a trade based on the height of that bar. So that'll be your stop and then 2x that or whatever you want. One and a half times that would be your target. And it would just create a trade for that. That also like creates the size. I think I played around with it when you're developing it. That and it looks like it's going to be really fun. Yeah, it looks really helpful. And the idea is to make it uh, so that your sizes never exceed your risk uh, parameters, you know, whatever you want to set as your max risk for a trade. Oh, I love that. Uh, that should be a standard feature on Sierra already, but yeah, we true. all know how those guys are over there. <laughs> all right. So uh, before we uh, 
dive into the discussion here then let me just finish up with the last of the business here uh if you want to reach out with any suggestions corrections or questions for future guests you can do that via email at suggestions at financialineptitude.com or as mentioned you can join our discord server uh we've recently merged with our friends over at bonta trading so our side is and always will be free we'll have all those links in the episode description so you can check them out at your own convenience but now that we get all that crap out of the way let's uh let's dive into the actual discussion so jm Take me back to the beginning. How did you get started on your journey into the markets? In the beginning. Um, <laughs> not, not that far. <laughs> um, so I guess the story starts when I was at university. Um, I have always followed what I've been interested in and have made decisions along um, that road. So got to the end of my degree. I did an interesting final year project, got off to do a PhD, so went on and did the PhD that ended up uh, raising some more kind of interesting questions based off the work I did. So I ended up staying in academia and doing a research fellowship. Um, but in the back of my head, I always knew that I had a, um, a kind of a get out of jail free card with, with ac academia in that mm -hmm. getting a, a PhD in maths was um highly desire desirable in the world of finance so i had a friend in finance already and you know he'd show me these like you know ads from the back of the financial times saying hey look look see look see what you could be earning here <laughs> and i was like yeah yeah okay okay and um i never kind of like i didn't uh, i never pursued it too much because you know i was focused on what i was doing but anyway it got to the point where you know we kind of i, I felt like we'd finished the work and I didn't really want to stay in academia because the the career path was quite limited um you, you were it ended up being a lot of, lot more paperwork and a lot more writing than I liked you know I liked uh, the numbers which is why I always ended up doing maths um and I ended up doing more and more of the things I didn't really like so all the I, research papers you have to write oh, man just endless and <laughs> so bad and it's, it's only now that i have children that i realized how badly i was taught english and oh wow I, you know I, he, my son's learning all these kind of like tools and techniques and i'm like oh my i didn't i it makes me realize now i never understood how to write and then i, I yet i was asked to write these you know uh, dissertations and papers for public publication and stuff. And, and I now realize why they criticize me so badly. It's because, <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, what does a paper on math look like? What are you, like, are you um, looking at like concepts or theories or? It was more, it was quite practical. So we were, um, I was sponsored by the UK Atomic Energy Association. So we were doing some kind of uh, offshoot of work on fusion reactors, oh, which was really um, yeah, it sounds. It sounds. I'm only bringing it up because it sounds fancy. Um, but we were just uh, analysing some of the data that came off it and looking at building some simple models to uh, better understand that phenomena. Um, but it was um, so the the papers were, uh, you know, reasonably technical but mm -hmm. um, applicable. So we actually used um, population models. So like emigrant um, immigration, emigration as a way to describe. Um, you know, things arriving into a, a population and then exiting, whether by measuring what you exit or what leaves, can you infer certain information about the population itself, uh, which is kind of what happens huh. in a um, in a fusion reaction. You've got stuff coming off and you want to be able to measure it and make some inference about what's going on inside. So 
we were doing a lot of that. Um, See, I find that fascinating because I have yeah. a I have a background in uh, uh, nuclear uh, nuclear background in uh, the Navy when yeah. I studied in there. Yeah, uh, not quite as fancy as uh, fusion. We were we were more yeah. of a hot rock, uh, <laughs> yeah. a glorified thermostat. I think they like to call us. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a fusion reaction. Just basically generates ash because they can't control it. So it's always hitting the sides of the of the right. um, the spherical to, uh, the um, the donut basically. So, yeah. it, you know, they they wanted to know how better they could control it. And they had what? all this data from the outside. And, you know, we were basically, we could kind of like produce a model that mimicked that um, uh, behavior in a very simple way. How long ago was this? Um, early 2000s. Uh, okay. So how much closer are we now? Like We're always 10 years away. Okay. <laughs> all right. That answers my question. So, <laughs> all right. 10 years all right, away. So you got... In- so the, the maths uh, thing got kind of boring as you're writing all these research yeah, papers yeah. on stuff that you don't want to do. How did you get into the market? Um, so I spoke to my friend and he, I said, oh, you know, have you got any contacts? And he goes, yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, I ended up getting an interview at, a, at an American investment bank and got the job. And mm-hmm. it turns out that the, the head of the department that I ended up working for knew my supervisor at university, which was, oh. they actually did their PhDs together. So it was this kind of like really small world. So it was a good job. I'd actually told my boss at the time at university that I was going to do this um, mm-hmm. because the guy that phoned him for the reference was his kind of old colleague. So it was, you know, it's this kind of like small world of academia almost. Yeah. The, it always seems like the the more you get into any field, the smaller the world becomes. You yeah. start running across the same people all the time. Yeah, exactly. And they were after um, guys with PhDs to we were working in counterparty risk, so analyzing how much risk the bank the, the bank had to other counterparties. And there was a lot of uh, modeling that went on with that, and we had to do risk assessment. So um, I moved over, and it was quite a steep learning curve, but yeah, quite I quite enjoyed that. You know, having a fresh problem to look at, and then. I've been there about 18 months and it's almost like as soon as you start in one of these banks, you get um, headhunt, headhunter calls. Oh, yeah. And they, you don't know how they get your number. And anyway, they'd be calling all the time. From, from other banks? Um, yeah, probably. Not for, well, <laughs> no, from um, like um, headhunters, just like um, recruitment agencies. They probably bought the data from your bank. I think they just bought, they, they just bought phone numbers. I think yeah, they just yeah. get the phone numbers like off um you know somebody down down the local pub and then they just cold call uh, in the hope that they they get somebody anyway you know i'd mentioned it to my wife and she was like you should just answer one of them and just see what they've got to say so i did and um he had this really intriguing role at another bank as it happened but it was uh, for on a trading desk um mm-hmm. a, a quantitative trading desk and uh, so I, I ended up going and you know went on quite a few interviews and and then eventually I got a call saying, Oh, all right, great. You've got the job. I was like, oh, right, cool. And are you in the States at this time? Or are you no, still in? No, never been. No, all, all in the UK. Okay. And then I, so went, went there and when I turned up, it was, so they, they were building a brand new desk from scratch. Um, mm-hmm. They weren't trading. Uh, they were, there was just, it was a, a tiny group. I think at the time there was, you know, there was maybe eight of us, and the, my boss at the time was this fascinating character who had come from a hedge fund, and I, th- I think he'd come with with an idea uh, based on how the hedge fund traded, and he he knew a bit of it, but not all of it, and he basically 
you know, persuaded the bank that he could build this. And he brought along a couple of guys and they'd hired, they'd hired some guys they'd worked with before. And then they'd hired me as a quant and this other Russian guy as a quant. And we basically were thrown into building this thing from scratch. And I didn't really, I, t- I t- it was, a st- that was another steep learning curve. So I, bet. I had to learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it sounds like he didn't quite know exactly what he was building. Oh, no, he didn't. He didn't. Um, <laughs> it, it was, it was like, it's like field of dreams. It was like, build it and they will come. It was like, build it and it will work. So we were, we were, we were all working on, um, so there was, there was obviously there's a, there's a massive amount of, um, work that goes into this. So there's nothing, there's nothing off the shelf. Everything is custom software that's been written mm-hmm. in house. So you, there's, um, there's the trading links, there's the market data links, there's, um, the the internal risk software there's the the uh, communicating with the bank software to um to to settle the trades at the end of the day mm-hmm. and then there's the the actual trading engine which is making the uh, the decisions and then there's what we would call the alphas which are all the signals which is the what comes together essentially to to make that trading de- uh, decision now i i i was brought on to help build those signals and the strategy that we were trading. And um, we had some kind of these couple of, couple of ideas for signals. Mm-hmm. And we had the developers creating all the exchange links and testing the exchange links and, and, and making the code as performant as possible because this was um, the whole game that we were playing was a speed game. So it was how we, we were aiming to be the quickest to market. So at the time, we were just on the uh, Eurex exchange in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. So what this entailed was having uh, servers co-located at Frankfurt. And then we would then have command and control from the London offices. When we then expanded that operation there to the CME and CBOT. So then we had... Um, servers in Aurora, which is the data center for um, yep. CME and CBOT. Right. And then we would then... So you, you, and you have to have them close by like that because you want the... We have to be as... The transmission as, delay, right? We have to be as close to the crossing engine as possible for each exchange. So... Uh, How much time does that actually save you like versus a server in the UK? All right, I'll get to it. So, um, okay. so then yeah. we would have... Um, optical connection optical fiber uh, fiber connections um between the locations and mm-hmm. to begin with so from um cme that would be um to london and then we would have then london to frankfurt and latterly we we uh, tested and swapped over to uh, another company who had a direct line to between cme and frankfurt and that saved us five milliseconds so the time between um the UK and Aurora was about somewhere between 50 and 60 milliseconds. That seems like a lot in that world. That's not actually, because that's across really? the Atlantic. So that's pretty good. That's basically the speed of light. Yeah, yeah. Um, so th- that was pretty good. But be- without having to do the hop through exchange architecture uh, and hopping, uh, bypassing London, you know, that extra five milliseconds made a massive difference. And I'll get onto why in a minute, but the, you know, by having, you know, so to go back to actually before we went live, we had um, three basic signals. So um, our edge was our speed and our implementation. Mm-hmm. The, the signals were 
really, really simple. So um, the first one was order book pressure. So we are looking for imbalances in, in an order book. Mm-hmm. So uh, are there more bids? Um, is there more quantity on the bid than the offer? And and then we'd have a trade flow alpha. So we're looking at the like normalized flow um, mm-hmm. in the market. And then we'd have the third one would be what we would call a correlation, but really it was just leading indicator. So uh, you're trading the S&P, you're looking at what the NASDAQ's doing. And if the NASDAQ moves and the S&P hasn't, you can make a bet that the S&P is going to mm-hmm. follow. But what, right. the other thing it does is it helps the, the, it help the system stay in, in trend. So when we started switching on and testing, we, we just had two, two of these signals uh, together and it would be, be quite nice. It would just like slowly make money and then there'd be a dislocation in the market and it would get run over because it was, it, 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 it couldn't react quick enough to, it could react quick enough, but it, um, there was too much noise in the back, in, in the, in the, in the flow coming backwards and forwards. It's like, you know, even though the market's moving up, there's flow coming in the other way. And that, mm-hmm. that flow coming the other way was enough to kind of like flip the strategy from long to short. Whereas having that correlation alpha or, or leading indicator alpha, it would um, help keep a keep the strategy in the in the in the right direction because that's the way the the movement in price was was going. So we then tune this system by so we were looking at thirty second horizons. We were trying to predict thirty seconds into the future, mm-hmm. and then um, the we the system you know it would be a blend of these three weight you know we'd weight these three signals together you know, in such a way to kind of produce a bell curve of, of signals. And, and then the edge of, imagine the edge of that, um, you know, three, like two to three standard deviations. Those were the signals that we, we traded on. And it was a case mm-hmm. of getting that um, frequency of orders f- firing such that we could, you know, it would, then it would constantly trade in the market. And it would be like um, uh, always in. And, we're, you know, the minimum amount we could capture was two ticks. Because you know, that that's how much you need. You know, one tick you're flat, two ticks you make profit. Right, right. Um, and then we we were quick enough that we could take any edge in the in in the order book. So as you got that dislocation or imbalance, or and you know, imagine it just the um, the touch on a on an order book, and it's a hundred by hundred. And then one side starts go. Um, somebody takes some off off the offer, and it's eighty, and then sixty. And then forty, and that's enough of imbalance for us. We we were quick enough to take that entire forty, and then mm-hmm. uh, we so that we'd take that, but we'd always overtrade to uh, leave something on the order book to then close that spread up, and then people would join behind us. So automatically, our first trade uh, it was traded to the point where we're we're now a break even because we've moved the book up. We're now on the bid. Uh, we've pulled our order. There's people behind us. So if we if we got a signal in the other direction, we would then trade out at that same price, or we the, the market would continue to move up in our favor until it reversed, and then we would go the other way. Uh, so so you're looking. So when the order book starts to thin out on one side or the other, then you're basically just going through there and sweeping that off. Yep, completely. We'd never trade through. We'd always it would always be, um, you know, uh, we'd trade. Uh, we'd leave the order on the book for about one and a half seconds, giving it enough time for other market participants to react to what we'd done. And then we'd cancel the order, the remaining order. <laughs> uh, okay. uh, I think I've seen see? that happen a few times. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. And, you know, for some, so sometimes we get, um, uh, we pick up some of that adverse flow. So we would, we get a position greater than um, what we were actually aiming for. So if there's 40, we might send 44 and we might pick up that extra four lots with just mm -hmm. reverse flow. Um, but then we would, um, our position limit for that product might be a hundred lots. So then we then have that another chance to trade and, uh, in that same direction. So the position would be a combination of multiple decisions for mm -hmm. the best description. Now, in some, some, some cases, uh, when the market was very volatile, we, we might just do the full position clip in, you know, we might be going long hundred, short hundred, long hundred, short hundred, long hundred, short hundred. And we'd be doing that hundreds, hundreds of times a day uh, to the point where in some markets we were, you know, anywhere from five to five to 10% of the entire market. Jesus. Wow. Uh, was anybody else doing this at the time or were you yeah. guys kind of like blazing uh, the trail? We were, uh, like I said, you know, my boss kind of had this idea, but mm -hmm. um, he, he'd come from somewhere else where they did this, but they did it slightly differently. And mm -hmm. I think they were a lot more profitable than us, but we were a, a lot quicker. At one point, <laughs> we were the quickest people in the, in the market based on the feedback we got from the exchanges who could see everything on the other side. And wow. our, wow. so we, we, we always looked at what we called uh, our fill rates, which was of the, of the orders we send for the quantity that we want, how successful were, were we? And we, we went through a stretch uh, on Eurex where our fill rates were 98 to 99% of everything that we went for. So we, when we did a reconciliation, we could, we could run a simulation against the data that we, um, I should have mentioned this actually before, um, against the uh, data that we recorded mm -hmm. to look at and see how um, similar our production performance was versus sim simulation. And there, there would always be some sort of, um, you know, gap from adverse selection and various other things, but um, it was a great indication. So, you know, as much effort for us went into making sure that our backtesting and simulation was as accurate as possible. And, and that was measuring latencies across the board, making sure the market data that we recorded was representative of what was happening in live. Um, um, we, we tried to use as much of the same software um, for, for all purposes. So rather than having a simulation engine, we used our actual trading engine to, uh, to, to backtest with. We just um, tricked it into thinking that the, the, the old, the recorded market data was oh. um, mm -hmm. the real, real life market data. So then one of our edges as well was that we, when we connected to CME and CBOT, we would then fire over the data from, uh, for the S&P and the treasury bonds over to Eurex and we'd use that data in the strategies because if you want an idea of whether you, the Euro stocks or the DAX is going to move, then you've got uh, information about what the S&P and the NASDAQ is doing before anyone else then you've got an edge over everyone else in the market on top of the fact that we can get to market quicker than anyone else. Uh, wow. That's why you needed the direct connection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we could make those decisions as quick as possible. And, you know, we were constantly analyzing the, the quality of the connections. So it wasn't just the speed mm -hmm. that we were getting the data. We were looking at the gaps between the data that was arriving compared with um, when it happened in America. So what we wanted to make sure that was that the, the variability in the data was consistent compared with 
uh, in real life. So we swapped links a couple of times just just because of the fact that the the variation in transmission was were, wasn't as um, as good as we needed for the the latencies. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, exactly. But also the noise, the noise created in, in the uh, transmission okay. of the um, of the information. Um, so, you know, to one of our, say, one of our responsible, one of the, the quant's responsibilities was to um, not just looking after the strategy or working on new signals. It was um, like figuring out problems when they happened, and things were always kind of tra- changing, you know, under our feet. So. Funnily enough, like the first day that we we switched on live was the day that it was the the sock gen issues with Jerome Cavill who'd been amassing these <laughs> futures positions. So, so, so this comes also comes back to you know we'd been working on like this promise that yeah don't worry this will work you know this is you know I've got no doubt this will work and you know the guys I'm working with are like well yeah we'll we'll, we'll just build it and you know I'm sure we'll figure it out and. So we, the we, we, day of turning that on, it had to have been terrifying. <laughs> day we turned it on, I think we made oh, we made like a, a high six figure sum on our first day, just because <laughs> the um, stock gen was liquidating uh, massive euro stocks and DAX positions in the market, and mm-hmm. they were just you know the market was just one way, and the, you know our system worked very well. <laughs> but, right. but we were we, but we were we you know it was a complete. Um, shock really because you know because we were just turning on we were trading in very small size and it was you know it was like oh it does work okay all right <laughs> you know maybe, <laughs> maybe I will stay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this might work out yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a good idea so, um, so so to give you an example of some of the other stuff that say I used to work on um, we we worked very closely with the exchanges and they were constantly upgrading their infrastructure mm-hmm. and or their software. So they were, uh, while, while, while we were at this first place, we, um, Eurex upgraded to, I can't, I can't remember the name of it now, it was so long ago, but it was a big overhaul of their um, market data and trading for, uh, software. So you had mm-hmm. the, you had two links. You had the market data links, and then you had the trading links, and they upgraded them both. And when you when when they say the, there's going to be an upgrade, they give you a paper with all the changes that are going to happen and access to an API to test. And um, you get to kind of test, uh, write the, write your software, test it against their system, and then there'll be a date where they decide right it's going live. So mm-hmm. we go live, and the um, our fill rates drop to like seventy five, eighty percent. And our, as a result, our profitability drops massively. And we're like, oh, my mm. God, you know, what's going on? What's going on? Wow. This doesn't look right. So what we what we did was we, we're constantly recording the market data. So what we did was we recorded the data. We, um, we'd been recording the data. So we took a copy of it, shipped it back to London, um, converted it to the format that we used to. Uh, so all this time that I was doing my work in MATLAB, and mm-hmm. so we convert it to a format that we could read into MATLAB, and then we could we could view it like line a tick by tick by tick. But each tick represented one um, either change to the order book or a trade. Mm-hmm. Now the old system was in, in Europe was was quite funny in that you get the this is this where it, we get into the weeds a little bit. So the quote you get um, the quote representing 
a trade comes before the actual trade. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So it's it's not it's not synchronous in that manner. So you, you the the order book would move, but you wouldn't know it had moved because of a trade until the next bit of information came, which was the trade. But then okay, if you okay. want if you wanted to trade based off that trade, um, you had to reference the 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 quote before the it. previous quote the previous that came quote. before the trade. Yeah. Okay. So when they did this upgrade, they changed it to be. Uh, the trade first, then the quote, but that wasn't in the oh. documentation. So our, oh. <laughs> our trading uh, uh, our trading system was prefaced on that ordering. And once we figured this out, it, we were like, okay, right, uh, the guys, uh, coders, uh, changed the system, uh, system that afternoon, ready for the next day. And we turned on and our fill rates were 100% for de- weeks. Wow. And it, uh, I learned, probably nearly you know just under 10 years later that some other people in the market who I worked with at a later date took them weeks if not months to figure out what this problem was because I'm curious did anybody like was there any legal ramifications to like changing that and not alerting people you think that there'd be some Um, lawsuits being slapped around maybe but not on our side because we had such an edge (laughs) you don't want to rock the boat piss them off and shut your feet off (laughs) no no we were just like right we'll just get our heads down and start working right and you figured it out on your own it wasn't like they told you no only you guys that there was a change no you you figured it out you know and i think anyone could figure it out yeah exactly it was all it was there to it, it was there in black and white you just needed to kind of know what you were looking for right but the um so i this, I've got another example as well of some of the stuff that we used to look at. So there was a, um, so this comes into where, you know, what we used to do was as much ele- electronic plumbing as it was, um, you know, fan- coming up with fancy signals. So I was, um, well, me, me and the other quants were looking at a product called the DAX, which is closely linked to the Eurostox because they share um subset of stocks so they move mm-hmm. very closely somewhat like the nasdaq and the and the s&p anyway and um, dax is very much like the nasdaq in in that the, the order books are a lot thinner so it's a lot harder to trade um but you know every time we try to construct a strategy it would want to you know weight the bias towards this correlation signal to so this leading indicator and, and that being the euro stocks but every time we did um the we, we couldn't achieve the fill rates of what was uh, uh, what was being suggested by the system. So mm-hmm. we could never achieve in theory what was what the simulations were saying. So so what we did was we went and looked deeper into the data, you know, looking looking at it uh, tick by tick. But also what we would do is we would interleave the, um, the Eurostocks and the DAX ticks. So we would look to see how they each arrived in, in line with each other. And then we were looking to see what was the trigger that was causing the movement in the price. Mm-hmm. So it was... What we what we determined was that there was a you know somebody would come in and buy fifty lots of yeah you know, fifty lots of euro stocks and then buy ten lots of DAX and he'd do it like time and time and time and time again and it was mm-hmm. it was that that is what our system was picking up so um, there was a there was a but we noticed that the the gap between the orders was was quite large and so. But consistent, so that's how you knew they were correlated. Yes, exactly. But it was mm. so it was, it was a consistent gap, and we were like, you know, I think I think there might be a trick here. So, Eurex has two matching engines, um, 
and they have two data centers. One was called Equinex and the other one was called Cult. And Equinex was where the German Bund, um, the Bobble, which is another German bond, and the Eurostox traded. The other one, Colt, was where DAX traded the Schatz, which was the two-year German bond, the Swiss. Wait, what uh, was the name again? Schatz, S-C-H-A-T-Z. Okay, uh, okay. Sounded like Schatz, like the past tense of yeah. poop. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. no. <laughs> that, that's how it was referred to. Uh, okay. The Schatz was shit. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, and so they were in two different locations. However, you, you could submit your orders to eat to either of the data um, of the data centers and it would get piped over to whichever one it needed to get to. However, we had exchange, uh, we had servers in each because we mm-hmm. knew that there was a competitive advantage being as close to the, the crossing engine that you needed. So what we thought was this uh, person at this bank or who at hedge fund was, you know, they could have been doing this out of a spreadsheet. And uh, so that adds latency. And if they were being lazy and submitting their DAX orders to Equinex instead of Colt, that was what was causing the latency. So we set up a strategy that was um, conditioned just on this one order in the market. And we managed to get our order in between. So anytime his Eurostox came, we were in there first and then his order would come and move price. So we would take what he was after and then we'd automatically get like this bump um so so we we deployed this strategy and it made a, a fantastic amount of money um and then it just stopped you know because this guy we either arped out the profitability of his strategy or <laughs> yeah. it, you know he's like it's just not working anymore i've given it long enough i'm going to stop and that's you know and that then it ended so that's an example of where it's 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 as much understanding the architecture as it is um creating the strategy I, I think I'm following that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this over to Robert. Do you have any follow up questions on that <laughs> that you want to dive into? Um, well, no. Well, that that did make sense to me. I did want to ask a question though, kind of going back just to the order when you place an order. What were your were your exits always just when the market switched and the and the quants decided to you know, got a signal in the reverse, or was yeah. there a max so, position size you would go or max ticks? Oh, yeah. So every strategy had a position limit, which was. A function of the size, the average size of the order book that we were trading. You know, we couldn't trade with a position too uh, too high because right. um, we, we we could get stuck. You know, we, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be nimble mm-hmm. enough to kind of be go long and go short. You know, it's, you know, there was it was like there was only only if it took hundred hundred decisions to go from short to long, that was too many. So our position limit was always constrained by the size of the order book. But we would always trade from signal to signal to signal. We ne- there was never any stop losses. There was never any profit targets. We were just constantly trading within the flow of the market. The only thing that could turn a strategy off was if it hit a, uh, a drawdown on the day that was outside what we would consider the uh, statistically acceptable for the strategy. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Sure. I just had a question. Go on. I lost it. <laughs> Yeah, I had what a follow-up question too. I was about to make too. a note. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, Robert. Let you do no, it. I'll see if I can figure it out. And I also out. forgot my follow-up. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll keep talking. And when you remember, Late stop me. <laughs> we suck. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen. And I'm pleased to announce that she's back. Fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. 
Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. (laughs) <laughs> oh god no it's fascinating that's the problem I'm getting lost in the conversation here there's some things i always wanted to know about this actually i mean it's just uh i guess one question is are people still doing this uh yeah what, what i would describe? say yeah okay. so um citadel still do it um in a big way um who else um, but they have the advantage of seeing the order flow yeah but they, they have multiple departments so they've got okay. uh, um one that handles that and then they, they'll have a uh, futures or Delta One department who are doing uh, something akin to what I've just described. I, I, I believe I can't speak with any surety on this anymore, but um, of course, this this is so. There's there's two elements of of this. You know, we were we were kind of like low late low latency liquidity taking, whereas you know HFT is often you know when people refer to that that's market making, which is. Uh, ha- passively having your orders on the book and you're constantly adjusting the location and size of those orders. And, you know, you're always racing to be at the front of the queue. So you're, you know, you're saying you're sending a high volume of messages to the market. Whereas we were, we were always uh, lim- uh, throttled to um, like two seconds. We would, we wouldn't trade any faster than two seconds because, you know, we'd always want to see what the impact of our order was on the market before you make another trading decision. You uh-huh. can't be um, trading before other participants have reacted to what you're doing. Whereas, if you're if you're man- managing inventory, say on the S and P, and you're market making, you're constantly adjusting your inventory based on whether you uh, the position the position you have um, and the signals that your system is telling you as where you believe uh, like the you know the fair price to be. So you're with that you're you know imagine doing that across the entire stock um universe so mm. the sheer volume of orders that you're sending and then having order flow coming in is a massive edge because we always we always refer to it as like a micro price which is you know what's the what's the mid of the bid and the ask uh, on any stock or any future and you were always trying to generate your own kind of micro price which was where you believed fair value to be, was it higher or was it lower? And then you could adjust your, you know, your, the inventory on the book based on uh, hmm. where you thought that price was, uh, as well as the also the inventory that you were happening. And this, you know, this is where all the stock stuffing and uh, market manipulation stuff were, that was um, that we've all heard about of late from um, what's his name, the um, the other British guy, um, Flash Crash guy. Oh, he I forgot uh, his name. Yeah, he. Um, so there was another guy actually called out of. I think he was German. He was referred to as the Flipper, and he he would. Um, I first saw him when I was at this at this bank, and we were. I was sitting. You know, I was watching the order book just to get familiar with it, or you know, and 
sometimes you know it's best to you know like like these days you know, screen time and watch, <laughs> watching what, yeah, the, yeah. what the market's yeah. doing and it was you know it was i can't remember it was like three and a half thousand uh, was the price and then all of a sudden three and a half thousand popped onto the bid and then three and a half thousand popped onto the offer as I, I was like you know i spoke to one of the traders and so i was like what this is, is this normal he's like why what, what are you seeing yeah, I, I'm so, I swear I just saw the price pop onto onto the onto the quantity. He goes, no, 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 that can't happen. And then we're watching it, and lo and behold, it happens again. So, and it turns out that the, this behavior was massively detrimental to to our strategy because if you imagine, oh you know, god, yeah, we're looking at the um, the imbalances in the book, and if somebody is coming along and uh, massively manipulating um, the the imbalance then he he uh, encourages us to kind of like trade so we're basically paying the spread you know hundreds yeah. hundreds of times and you know we'd, uh, we'd have these massive drawdowns and he'd do it like a quite you know for european markets you you get this flurry of activity between for in the uk it would be between eight and nine o'clock and then it'd be this quiet period until the us market opens and you get like economic numbers coming you know half half past eight your time um, but in this quiet period, he'd just come on and he'd just, you know, flip flip this quantity backwards and forwards, uh, take some money from us and then, you know, call it a day. And we've, <laughs> wow. we, he, was ac- he was actually trying to... Yeah, he was wow. he was baiting uh, the the algorithms in the market. And, you know, we, we kind of like semi-complained to um, the exchanges and they'd be like, yeah, but he's good for it. And we're like, right. what? He's good for it. Oh, okay. yeah, wow. If you hit him he'll take it and we're like right <laughs> okay so we, we ended up having like software in that if we if we uh detected like these type of orders it, we, our system would just stop trading and um you know, but then stop. that just encourages them to get a little more yeah, instead but, of being they, they, to finesse it a little bit better maybe don't go with such a large size but maybe do it spread it out over us yeah, yeah yeah ladder yeah, or something yeah he, he um he didn't need to he needed to to have it close enough that we would we it would um, it would react to you guys it would react or to you us. would react to it yeah yeah um but yeah it was yeah it was fun and, you know it's part and parcel it's almost like it. an arms race it is it is it's it's there's a technology race so you know we were constantly upgrading the, our servers we had atomic clocks at, uh, atomic clocks and everything and we were constantly measuring uh you know the latency of our software what could we do to make it quicker um, you know anything we could do to get an edge, but so kind of the next step of the the uh, story, I guess, is we um, our bank merged with another bank because of certain things that were happening in two thousand seven and early two thousand eight, <laughs> and yeah. um, it, it no longer became an environment that w- they were keen with our type of trading activity. So we ended up moving as a team to somewhere else, and. I, at that point, we, you know, my boss was wanting to go and go out to Asia, and I was going to go out to Hong Kong, and he um, he found us somewhere to to live, um, like another company to work for, but mm-hmm. they had offices offices in uh, in Australia, and at this point, um, my wife and mine uh, belongings were packed up in a container um, on their way to Hong Kong. So we had to quickly get in contact with 
the shipping company and saying, oh, you know that container that you've got? Can you divert it, please? Um, <laughs> Whoops. So, yeah, so we went out to we went out to Australia and then we we ended up uh, that we that formed the Asian arm of of the of the company. Uh, well, the company was already based out there. We uh, we formed like an an Asian desk and then we started yeah. out building out the uh, the exchange links to uh, all the other exchanges. So we ended up being on CME, CBOT, um, Eurex, uh, Life in London, Japan, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, Singapore, Korea, uh, Kospi in Korea, and the SFE in Australia. And then we had then links between all of those piping data to all these various places, because there was obviously for, for each period, like for Asia, for you, for, for the Asian overnight Asian period, the mm-hmm. London period, and then for the New York session, there was um, each session benefited from being able to see the data at different times. So during Asia, we'd we'd send Asian data to the CME and CBOT, and then for you know the European session, CME their data to would send to I would use in in Frankfurt at Eurex. And then we'd be sending the data in Eurex over to uh, the CME and CBOT as well for the RTH session. Because, you know, CME and CBOT is kind of like at the head in terms of importance, but it definitely benefited from having that um, data from the from the European markets, especially during 2008, where everything was moving in lockstep. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was this amazing kind of time from, from just from a market data point of view, because the... The, you know the bonds were purely inversely correlated with each other. You could pull them up, and they were like ripple ripple reflections on a on a pond or something. They just moved in <laughs> in inverse lockstep. So you know one of the one of the best wow. um, signals was using you know an inverse bond correlation on equities, and it was you know it was a real edge there. But so yeah, so we were, I went out there and we slowly built out a desk and worked hard and made good money, and then it kind of all kind of petered out and fell apart due to greed and hubris and various other things so <laughs> on whose part not my not my part okay okay um <laughs> no I, we ended up stuck out in in new zealand um we'd uh we were going to be spun out and have our own company and and then it all kind of fell apart and my wife and i would moved out there with our newborn son and bought a house and we were halfway through renovating it when it all fell apart and we had to uh quickly finish renovating said house and leave the country before my visa expired and we were no longer welcome in the country so Oof. it was a uh, kind of a messy messy end but yeah, so it, was it like, wasn't like if that hadn't happened you might still be there today yeah very yeah very much so i think do you, I, I don't know do how you it would turned out um, at, uh, at the time though i you know it's I, you know i'd wake up dreaming of tick data it was <laughs> you know, i feel as if i feel as if i replaced certain parts of my mem- short-term memory and long-term memory with uh you know, reams and reams of tick data. So, right. um, you know, when, you know, uh, well, I say that, but when I, when it ended, um, me and an ex colleague, we, we set up on our own and we had a go for a couple of years on our own. And, um, you know, that was a lot of work and it was, we, it, we ended up biting a bit more off than we could chew and we had to kind of like call time on it and the market's quieting down and there wasn't the volatility there and, yeah, uh, you know, uh, it was. I could come up with a whole heap of excuses, but in the end, it was. We just made the decision that it was best to uh, call it day, and yeah, that was. At, at that point, I was, I was done. 
I was completely over sitting at a screen and looking at tit data and worrying about all these small, tiny things. That's uh, that's a hell of a story, man. Yeah. Yeah, ticks and milliseconds. When it comes yeah, to ticks and milliseconds. <laughs> well, by we, the name of the episode, we we measured <laughs> we we measured the performance of our engine in nanoseconds. It was yeah, yeah. you know, we were really down in the, the nitty gritty, and then you know the the atomic clocks that we use would measure down to that that level of granularity on on the on the on the data that we recorded as well. So it was electronic plumbing and data manipulation, really, and a bit of machine learning. So let me ask you then. Um, so you trade now? Yeah. You trade futures, right? Yeah. Nasdaq or uh, any other specific indexes? Mainly Nasdaq, but I feel I feel as if I um I've been through the been through the the entire gamut of of the uh, retail trading universe on my way to where where I am now. So I um I'd like a bit of time off because I you know didn't want to, to to go anywhere near the financial markets and then. You know, because I've worked in it for so long, and I actually didn't right. enjoy it. I kind of came back to it, and but I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to do macro. Yeah, you know, I don't have to stare at the screens, and you know, it's you know, look at this big, you know, big big issues, big problems." And um, quickly realized that was um, more of a cost center than a profit center. So, <laughs> well, um, what's your definition of macro, though? After working in the nanosecond realm for no, so yeah, long, yeah, it was like you know, it was <laughs> ten seconds. <laughs> Minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was, I guess, an element of trend following based on, uh, you know, macro themes and you know, following yeah. following along with other people's research. And if I'm honest, it was it was more more the following along and, and and just enjoying that kind of research side of it. But I, you know, I realised it wasn't really a um, something I wanted to do. And then you know, and then slowly over the years, it's just you know, I had a brief foray back into the financial markets with another company. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's too too close by to talk to talk about, unfortunately. And fair enough. We um, and then I think it was about. So I got you know like everyone else, I got a little bit involved in crypto in 2017, and then I think it was about 2019 that I started getting into options, and I traded. I did that quite a bit. So swing trading options, which was you know I think we've chatted a little bit about briefly uh, in Vanter and. Mm-hmm. You know that was more like swing trading with options, and then you know doing various things around around that, and then being you know positioned around ideas. Now, if I'm honest about that, it was benefiting from the bull market. You know, it was it wasn't really that hard to make money during that period because yeah, the, the, like the the inbuilt nat- natural drift of the market had such a added such a tailwind to things that even if you're wrong, you know things generally kind of started. Uh, I think uh, George. Sold. Papazov said it best. Uh, it's probably two, three years ago. He said you could basically type your initials in, and then just buy that, and you'll do fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of environment it was. Yeah, exactly. And then I ended up uh, through uh, lucky, not luck, but you know, well positioned coming into twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, more that. Uh, oh, things can't go up any higher than here than this and what have you. But thankfully, with trading options, uh, there's always a a way to a kind of express that view in the cheapest way possible. And the low <laughs> the low vol environment meant that you know on the against you know I think uh, you know some of the stuff like you've been talking about with Eric, you can position uh, you can swing trade, but then you can maybe divert some of profits towards insurance. And right. so you know 
I had a, I, had, I think I had a calendar straddle and it was, it was really nice because as the market moved up, you could just kind of like reprice it risk for, for zero cost as it, as it just kept moving up and up and up. And then when the market actually did turn over, you, it, you know, it did really well because it was, um, you were long two options basically. Even right. the call, as the market tanked, the vol went up so much, even the calls made money. So <laughs> it was, um, yeah. But then after that, it was, you know, I, I discovered my my bias and it was, uh, you know, I just fought the market uh, over and over and over again. And it was, uh, I realized I couldn't, I couldn't swing trade because I had this bias. I didn't believe what was going on. And, you know, I had to kind of learn to fight against that bias. And then so, so slowly my timeframes dropped and they dropped and they dropped. And then, mm-hmm. you know, then I was like, slowly got back into futures. And then I realized that, that at that point, I was like, wow, there's people actually doing stuff very similar to what I used to do um, on the retail side. And I'd not, I'd not been back into that, that kind of space before. And that's where I, um, you know, came across various different people doing lots of interesting things and came, you know, there was a, a very old discord called the kingdom. Or, do you remember? Oh yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. Yep. And, um, you know, I think Flurry was in there, and yeah. various other of the uh, Baba. I think was in there. Baba yeah, and Banks, and um, a whole a whole heap of other people. Anyway, they're doing all this cool stuff, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this is pretty cool." And then it slowly, kind of just you know, almost relearned what I what I used to do from a completely different angle. Um, added with the constraints of um, being a retail trader, I guess, and facing the biggest issue, which lies between the keyboard and the chair. <laughs> I'm curious what uh, what things you were able to take from your experiences uh, as a quant and how that applied to your own trading. Like, were you able to utilize any of that that stuff that you learned? Oh, well, first, I'll tell you why it was the worst, the best and worst thing to, to ever happen. Because um, <laughs> trading for me was, well, you just turn up with an idea and you make a lot of money and it works straight away. And you trade a system that has 10 down days in four years. And um, what's the problem? You know, training is easy. Exactly. So, you know, it was like I had this kind of skewed idea of what um, what trading was and this real aversion to to losses because I'd never experienced any. And it was, Uh. was, you know, to to. You could you could put a, a, a linear regression through our PL lines, and there would be very little residual error in them. They were very wow. very smooth and well, consistent. Why would they shut that down? Well, the, <laughs> everyone, <laughs> everyone, this is it. This is one of the reasons I didn't want to go and work back in the, the industry was that you know I've met some really good people, but I've met some really bad people as well. Yeah, um, and one of the nice things about you know getting back into this the side of things in the retail is that most people are most people are really nice and it's it's a much more refreshing place to be than than certain places i've worked in the past mm. um so but on the positive side you know i i can i'm very good at um i'm a quick study at things and i can you know i'm, I'm not a very good programmer but i know enough to I can go into most systems and figure out what I want to do. So I quite like Sierra chart in that respect because I can pretty much go in and bend it to my will. (laughs) (laughs) Simply, simply because they they provide so many examples, you know, it's um, there's always 
an example of what you want to do. And then it's just a case of like taking it out and piecing it together. To... I've, I've tried. I've not had much luck with that. I've, I've had much better luck with Python. Yeah. 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 So Python replaced MATLAB really in, in, in yeah. the whole world. Um, you know, when we started, MATLAB was uh, kind of the go-to, but then, you know, um, more recent forays, it was Python. But, you know, because of the C++, the limited C++ that um, I, I knew and could use, uh, a hack basically it was <laughs> it meant that i could I, I was confident enough to go in and fi- i could figure stuff out because you know once you've but once you've got the basic concepts a lot of things are uh the same it's like speaking a language you you know i can order yeah, a, yeah. i can order a beer in a, quite a few different um uh, languages and it's it's the, it's the same thing with programming it's like i can i can i can get it to do say the basics and that's for trading uh, that's kind of just what you need really so yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Any any of them actually. Even Motor Wave, you need Java, but it isn't that much. You need to know. Yeah, and, and you know all, all the basics. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's you know a bit of an ask, the moving average here and there, some standard deviation stuff, and that's pretty good. I think so, one of the most. Oh, I was just going to say. I think one of the most surprising things is how simple the strategies were. I was just curious if that's yeah. uh, and if that's the like standard. I've heard this from other other people saying you could write um, most strategies on the back of a postcard. It was, you know, I could write down the entire uh, core concept of the strategy, you know, in probably four lines, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, of, of maths. And it's it's not, it wasn't complicated, but the implementation was incredibly complicated. But it seems like you want the programming or the the actual algorithms to be as simplistic as possible, so that way the time it takes to execute those lines of codes is reduced. Yeah, precisely. So we we'd measure the performance of our signals just to make sure that we weren't spending too much time like stuck in a for loop or you know or that we were handling memory efficiently. But the <laughs> right. the the simplest the, the 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 simpler something could be, the better. Yeah, and yeah, we you know a good example of this was you know we we had a really good edge and so we would use genetic algorithms to do parameter searches and it was a really nice way to do it because it would um produce this like population basically of of uh, parameters and then it would um you know mix them mix and match them to to come up with uh, new um new new members uh which were evolutionary uh, based on the predecessor so we we had this, you know, our uh, kind of like search optimization was much more sophisticated than the trading system that we we're actually using. Um, <laughs> and a lot sense. of people have been doing this, you know. I'm um, using machine learning and stuff in 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 trading, but there was a lot of people doing it who were, um, you, you know, it's the data you feed in that's as as right as as important as anything else, and you've got to make sure that the data coming in is of a really good quality because you could, you know, otherwise you're just, you know, you know, a grid, a computational grid or, you know, a fancy machine learning model. It's just a, you know, a fancy, fancy calculator really. It's, it's nothing more. And you've, you've got to know what to ask a question to ask it to, to get the right, uh, right. The right answer. And then you've got to know how to trade it as well. <laughs> Robert, you started to ask a question there. I didn't mean to cut you off. When, um, so many things I want to say actually, but so you're, um, the old algo that you, you guys, and you could write it on the back of postcard. And I think that's, that's from what I've, my own experience and what I've read from other books that simple is always the better option. Um, but could you take something like that 
and just scale it up so that it doesn't require the nanosecond or even millisecond latency, but can look at seconds of data and maybe take a little bit higher level decisions based on looking at a little bit larger part of the ladder, perhaps, or um, something. It depends on the, you know, the, the signals were based on a, like a return horizon almost. So we were trying mm-hmm. to predict a 30 second return and anything beyond that was just, was just noise. So, you know, if we extended the prediction horizon, it, the, it's just the, noise. It's just noise, and the edge of the signal would go. You know, it's yeah. you know if you, you look at the market now, if you look at it on a on a really really fine time scale, you you can see this auction backwards and forwards in the market as it's even when it's going up. You know, it will it will say on on Nasdaq it will auction um, you know up and down about twelve points, and it was those type of small oscillations that we were predicting, and it wasn't that we couldn't predict that the market was going to go up, but what we could do was. You know, our position was a accumulation of those small decisions, and enough of those small decisions were going, going up. Then we we would be long. But you know, conversely, if if the the market was low low volume, then the same thing could be happening. But there wasn't enough flow or like directional flow in the market, and we could end up you know drifting short up while the market was drifting up, and mm-hmm. you know, and we'd be like you know, um, you know, the, our, our death knell was a trend day because. There was there's so little movement in the price, and we I see it now all the time, and you know I sit there smirking that you know <laughs> my my old system would would have would have hated that day because what often happens is the order box order book gets um, skewed at the same time, so you're con- you know as the market's trending up, you're constantly trading short and trading short and trading short because there's just so little movement in price. Whereas those those days where you've got this massive back back and forth movement. You know, and there's all these traders out there screaming, oh, yeah, oh, I hate it when the market's chopping like this. Those chop days are when the algorithms are just like, oh, give, you know, more, give me more. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Wow. It explains why they're so hard to trade, too. Yeah, it is. It is. And, cause, and you know, w- w- one of the markets we did worst in was the S&P. And it was only in hindsight after reading various books was that it, it, it seemed to be the playground for so many um Algos and nefarious characters, Nav Soro, who was the flash crash dude. But mm-hmm. then there was this other guy who, who like his um, nemesis, I guess is probably the best word. And they were they were all playing these games on the order book. So it's like, well, how, you know, how can you, uh, put, you know, produce a signal with a with a decent edge when there's, there's so much of this predatory noise in the market? Whereas we actually made a lot of money trading the treasury bonds because they were boring. And nobody really cared about them. And you had these, old, you know, kind of like more old fashioned market makers who were really just inventory managing order, the order book. Um, and we happened into it at a time where all of a sudden rates started moving all over the place and there was uh, liquidity fears and so to bonds. You know, we made a lot of money on the two year treasury and then we didn't make any money on it because it would move all over the place and then it would stop moving. Um, because you know it was just a purely a function of uh, the perception of where things were going. So um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, different people doing different things out there, and it's none of it's easy, and especially for us. Uh, we're getting kind of close to the end here, Robert. Do you have uh, anything else you want to ask before we start to wrap this thing up? Um, I, well, this, I don't know if this is a question that you can answer, but I look at, of course, I look at the um, the ladders or the, the order books on the DOM, and I. I've noticed over the last few years, I've been looking at that like some different contracts will trade 
very differently on the dot like this versus CL, the uh, US oil versus like S&P. They look very different if you're looking at the DOM. And what I noticed in particular is that like in, in Sierra, you can get the push-pull column in the DOM, which is just showing you orders being at, at each level, orders that are being added or, or subtracted at each level. And in ES, they're, they're pretty much kind of spread over, you know, kind of distributed across different levels near price. Um, and I, I limit my push-pull to just to be like 20 levels on either side. But on CL, it's really just the two or three levels right around price where almost all of the changes are happening. Hmm. Yeah, we, um, well, it was a tricky one because so there's, you've got um, the WTI and then you've got the Brent contract based out of um, ICE, which is the Intercontinental, Intercontinental Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, so a lot of people can will and do arbor, arbor off against the two of them. But okay. the, the other thing is, is the, is the curve itself with oil is, is a massive element to it. So people will play the curve on, on oil and whether it's in backwardation or contango. So, you know, if somebody's market making, um, the front month, they will also be market making the entire curve. So their risk will be spread out across the entire curve based on my knowledge of it. You know, that might not be a hundred percent correct, but, um, based on what I knew 10 years, 10 years ago now, (laughs) that's kind of how they do it. But to your point again, with the size of the order book, so this is, this can be massively affected by, um, you know, like the, like the, not only, so the, the price of the, the underlying instrument, um, and the multiplier, you know, if they, if they were to, you know, change the tick size or the multiplier of an instrument, it would dr- dramatically change how it behaved. Um, we were always after products that had really thick order books because they would provide, uh, more participants would be on there, um, making, uh, decisions and uh, putting orders. Whereas if the market, if the order book's really thin, you, maybe you've only got a couple of participants at each level, so you don't have that kind of like wisdom of crowds about what's going on, mm. which is then why things are uh, much more whippy and volatile, say like the Nasdaq. Whereas the S and P is slow; it takes much more volume to move price mm-hmm. um, than it does on the other instruments. And the bonds, and the right. same with oil. You know, people don't lay it, lay that as thick because there's there's so much risk in it. Um, outside of, you know, there's like the geopolitical risk almost. So, you know, no one wants to market make it too deep because, you know, if, if price shoots up. Right. right they're they, offside. They're yeah. massively offside. So, yeah. which is what happens on news events. You know, you see the order books thin out. That's people just basically limiting their risk. Yep. Yep. Every week. Right. Anything else, Robert? No, this is, so uh, actually are you, so are you developing or thinking about doing any kind of, uh, Automated trading now? Um, I do a little bit of automated trading. So I, I do it in out of Sierra. I just have a couple of algos set up to do different things. Um, and a lot of the, the, the inbuilt stuff in there is pretty good, especially around like, the risk management and you know all the difficult stuff on the back end that I always hated having to program myself. <laughs> yeah. I can, um, you, you can just come up with the signals and do that. But I think as a retail trader, it's the... it's it's everything else. It's all the different, you know, it's the coming back to that word bias. It's like, you know, having that kind of um, bias for today without like a personal bias. It's like what, you know, I have a, a narrative of what I believe is going to happen. And then it's like trading around that using your signals. It is it, how kind of I view it, at the, at, you know, now it's like, I might have a system that produces signals, but without the context of what I believe, 
um, that flat that that strategy might uh, might be flat on the day. Whereas if if I say right, just take longs because of you know we're above value or what have you, then mm-hmm. I, I think that's where the edge comes in. I think there's just that kind of like gray box gray box approach as opposed to a black box approach. You know, I'd love uh, I'd love something I could just come in and turn on and turn off, but even with a system like that, you always end up spending the time at the screens. You know, I was like, I, I don't want to do algo trading again because I don't want to sit in front of the screens, but you're going to be in front of the screens one way or another. It's, you're either going to be doing it, uh, you know, looking at new strategies, figuring out why a strategy is not working, or you can be doing it just like, you know, working and about, uh, you know, bigger picture things and how, how you're, you know, taking the lim- limitations of your strategy and how that fits into that kind of bigger picture view using various other tools. So when you're trading with with a mouse as opposed to an out yeah. a bot, um, I guess manual discretionary trading. So are, well, is it discretionary truly, or are you using like more systemic or systematic trading? Uh, it's more discretionary. It's more discretionary. Okay. I, I just utilize a lot of um, signals. I wish you know it's. Um, I'd, I'd love to be at the point where I, I could do that again, but um, you know, I'm not at that point yet. It's uh, it's this ever evolutionary, evolutionary. You know, you know, what works one week doesn't work again the next week or yeah. month, or you know, the concept, yep. things are constantly changes. Whereas it's it's kind of like digging out those those truisms in the market, you know, as opposed to uh, I always say to people that the only constant in the market is change, and it's, you know, it's kind of like being on the right side of that change. Right. Or loose change, pick it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I used to do. Yeah. Uh, oh man, this has been one hell of a conversation. It sounds like we have to do. We might have to do a follow up to this because yeah. I feel like there's probably a lot of untapped material we haven't gotten to. Yeah, I've probably forgotten most of it. <laughs> right. Uh, I think unfortunately it means we have come to the time, the end of our time with JM here. Uh, Want to hear more? Make sure you join the Discord, the Vanta. Uh, you can shoot him a friend request. I'm sure he'd love to chit chat markets with uh, anybody interested in learning more. Uh, also, big thank you to Robert for helping out with this episode. Uh, again, shoot him a DM if you want to check out some of those tools that he's been working on. And maybe we can get the two of these guys collaborating to build some new tools for us too. I'm up for that. Uh, definitely. If you guys want that, hit that like button. Uh, hit that five-star rating with the speed and frequency of an algorithmic trader. Then take care. <laughs> <laughs>